everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rings of Power Half Hour. So today, I'm recording because I've watched episode 5, which I believe is called Partings, um, and there were a lot of partings in it, so I get the naming. <laughs> um, but man, where do I start? Episode 5. Um, I didn't get to talk about episode 4 because that was Jay's episode. Um, I actually enjoyed episode 4. I think that was one of the better ones. I think episode 3 and episode 4 were um, the best so far. Episode 5, I didn't like. I'm just going to give my opinion right there. Get it out of the way. I did not like it. And I, um, I saw also that a lot of people online did not like it. And I mean, I agree with them. It was, I just, I'll explain it later. <laughs> just wait. But, um, yeah, so today, uh, I'll just kind of go over. I mean, there's not a lot to talk about, but at the same time, there is. Like, I could go on and on about it again, but that would be a boring podcast episode, so I'm not going to. Anyways, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'll just go over the uh, the overview summary type thing again, and then I'll talk about what I didn't like, what I liked, stuff like that. There wasn't much I liked. I'm just gonna say that, but there are the the few things I did like uh, did not redeem the whole show, which was or the episode, which was a little disappointing. But like I was talking with Jay earlier, and like we've mentioned on the podcast, I'm just keeping my expectations low, so that way, if it is disappointing, I'm not disappointed. You know. And if it is actually really good, like episode four was, then, you know, it's it's a surprise and it's enjoyable. So I'm just keeping my expectations low for now, which is, I think, a good way to go about it, you know, just try and stay neutral somewhat. But anyway, so we open with um, uh, Nori, the Heartfoot, and the Stranger talking about um, kind of Heartfoot culture a little bit and their migration process and... Um, and how they're continuing on to the grove, which is like a big orchard with all these fruit trees. And um, Nori talks about how there are many perils on the road. And um, the stranger is like, I'm a peril because I killed the fireflies. He didn't say it like that. He's still learning their language, but um, he was mentioning the fireflies, how he killed them. And Nori's like, oh, no, you're not a peril. You're, you're good. And also when they were talking about perils... I couldn't catch the word very well. It was like, it must have been the way they were saying it, but peril, like P-E-R-I-L, like it's a perilous thing, like a bad thing, like dangerous. I couldn't catch it, and I was trying to figure out what they were saying. I'm like, he's a peril? And I'm like, is that in like an elvish word? And I could not think about it. But then when they mentioned it like the last time, I was like, oh, like peril, like perilous. Oh, makes sense. <laughs> uh, so it was just kind of funny in my own head. I did that to myself. Um but yeah, then they uh, they they kind of show like on the the map, like the the paper map, like where the Harfoots are going, and it seems like they originally started maybe just south of um, the southern tip of Mirkwood, um, in this kind of like hilly plains region, which kind of showed. I mean, there's like some forest here and there, but it kind of showed in the first episode. That's kind of where they were at, but um. And it shows them going south, and they're staying to the eastern side of the Emming Mule, uh, which are um, a bunch of rocky hills and crags, which we see Frodo and Sam trailed by Gollum uh, journeying on their way to Mordor in the re- nope, the Two Towers. 
Um, and so they're going on the east side of it and they end up in some marshes and on the map they just call it the gray marshes because it's not the dead marshes at the time because there was no battle there and I do want to mention one thing um, there were no marshlands in that area at that time because it only turned into marshlands after the war of the last alliance when there was a great battle there um, so it would have just been plains I mean it would have been lowland plains because if obviously if it is turned into a marsh at some point you know it's got to be low elevation and doesn't drain very well so it it might have been like a wet plains or something like that uh, there's a lot of like biomes and environments that you can look at that it could have been um, so it might have been like a little damp but I don't think it would have been like marshy um, and there's supposed to be a battle there and I don't think like you know tried and true warriors would fight in a marshland you know that wouldn't make much sense but anyways whatever that's just a small detail I'm just kind of picky about those things but you can't get everything right in a show that costs 500 million <laughs> um, anyways uh, yeah and then we um, we kind of see <clears throat> uh, the stranger looking up at the stars and the moon um, and I guess a popular theory among some fans is that the stranger is the man in the moon that uh, Frodo and Sam often sing about in the, the Lord of the Rings. Um, he's, I guess, a popular um, hobbit um, like folktale or something like that. Um, and it could just be that what whatever purpose he has in the show, it could be that the legend of someone coming down from the sky the man in the moon came down too soon type thing. Um, it could be that that legend stuck throughout, and even after the full purpose of his arrival was kind of lost and forgotten among the hobbits, they still kind of brought that tradition of the man in the moon came down to earth, um, and it kind of carried on into the Shire. So it could be that. That's that's what people are saying. But he looks up at the moon, and then it cuts to a shot of where the stranger first landed in this blackened pit, and we see on this cliff come these three people all dressed in some sort of white um one of them is the Eminem looking character um who i guess is called the dweller i guess they all have names even though they're never mentioned um but she's called the dweller and she seems to be sort of like the leader she's some sort of like um like witch cultist person i don't know uh seems to be serving sauron because she has like a little scepter with like an eye symbol on it um and then another person is wearing armor, and um, they are called, what was it, the Nomad, um, which I feel like is a weird name for uh, a warrior, or like someone clad in armor, you know. Um, and then the other one's name is, uh, where is it, the Ascetic, not, not Aesthetic, but Ascetic, it's uh, A-S-C-E-T-I-C. And I guess it means, um, I guess, uh, what does it mean? Um, let me, let me look this up real quick because I, I had the meaning of it in my head and, um, like I looked it up earlier and then now I forgot about it and I thought I would be able to remember it and apparently I can't remember it. Just, uh, it's just the way it is, I guess. Um, all right, give me one second as I look this up. These episodes are always so planned out. I love it. Ascetic. Okay. 
characterized by or suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for a religious reason. Okay, so, yeah, I guess that would make sense. If she's some sort of, like, cultist, like the rest of them, then she would be, like, you know, someone who has, like, really good self-control, self-discipline, uh, kind of like a monk type of thing. And she's not, I mean, she's got, like, a mixture of, like, she's just kind of wearing, like, dark robes and white robes, and then she's holding, like, some sort of, like, metallic plate, and on the back of it is the shape of the constellations that the... uh the stranger was mentioning so either the stranger has something to do with Sauron or the stranger is Sauron himself and um, you know the cultists are looking for him um, which I don't really like that theory but I like the theory that he might have something to do with Sauron I don't know um, okay yeah and then so now we uh, go to Adar he's informed that the tunnel is complete um, and it seems that his plan is to blot out the sun um, in the land that will become Mordor and turn it into a land of dust and shadow, then being called Mordor, Black Land. Um, and uh, Arondir kind of tells the Southrons um, the message that Adar sent to him, and half the Southrons actually leave and surrender and um, join Adar. And uh, then we go to Numenor, and Isildur uh, is talking to his dad um, about how he wants to join the force going to Middle-earth. But Elendil declines um, because he's not... He's trying to be like a stickler about it because he's like, oh, you're not part of the Sea Guard, you're not part of the cavalry, you're not part of this or that. So technically you wouldn't be able to go. And it's kind of confusing what the state of the army is in Numenor because at this time it's supposed to have like... A very impressive army because by the time they meet Sauron you know Sauron is so um, basically afraid and all of his orcs are afraid that he just surrenders so I don't know how they go from having a volunteer army and a volunteer navy to having this crazy good army within a matter of years so as I don't I mean it could be done I guess but it's it's it feels like something that should be like hundreds of years in the making or something um okay so yeah uh we see halbrand forging a sword um and it shows his craftsmanship because the sword is apparently very good and um so this could be kind of like leading people to believe oh is this sauron because we know he was a servant of aule and he was great at smithing um or is he the witch king still you know is um Perhaps that was his like claim to fame. The Witch King is that he forged legendary swords or something. Um, yeah, and then we kind of uh, we see that Farazone is still kind of playing along. He's kind of playing his uh, his little game against Muriel. It seems. Um, yeah. So then we cut back to the Harfoots. Um, oh, one one thing too is when the Harfoots are traveling, um, it like starts to rain a little bit in um, Poppy. Uh, is singing her um, I can't remember the song title but it's her little song that she sings on the journey and it's a good song I really like it it's very hobbitish which is good um, but the way they kind of show the scenes and then they show the stranger looking out of the tent flap while it's raining just seemed so much like a Disney movie to me and there's nothing against Disney movies but it just didn't fit with the Lord of the Rings feel um, or even the hobbits that much. The scene, at least, the song was perfect, um, and the uh, the landscapes and everything. But it was just like that little scene where they showed 
the stranger opening the flap and it's raining and the song is going on I'm like I, I don't know I, I don't really like it but whatever um yeah and then uh so we see the Harfoots in this kind of old decrepit forest and they are attacked um by these warg like tr- creatures I guess we saw that warg in that like slave camp where they're digging the tunnels with the orcs but it had like wild eyes and everyone was like oh is that a warg but then now everyone's like oh are, are these the wargs but these are like a mixture of like wolves and like boars they're kind of interesting I like the look better but I, I can't really tell what one's a warg and what one's not but anyways they're attacked by these warg creatures and the stranger uh, steps in and protects them and then he kind of like slams his hand on the ground and it like sends a shockwave and it like kind of um, uh, it kind of stuns the wolves a little bit and they run away and then he realizes he like injured himself with the amount of I guess power that he used um, and then Galadriel in what I think is one of the worst scenes of the, sh- the episode or even the show actually uh, she is mentioning to Elendil that you know like um, killing orcs is not a matter of just having the numbers or having the brute force to be able to do it and so he was like well perhaps you'd like to show them a, a thing or two about killing orcs since you have so much experience so there goes Galadriel you know in her dress and she has her sword and she's like in front of a line of other people um two of them are Isildur's friends and um so she talks about how it's not just brute force um you've got to kind of make it like it's all about your like feet movement and everything like that you got to outmaneuver the orcs and um so she she asks if anyone can land a hit on me if anyone can strike me then or no Elendil says if anyone can strike her they will be promoted immediately to lieutenant because he's confident enough that maybe only one will strike her if any um so it's a pretty big deal and so uh Valendil one of his Sildur's friends tries at first and he can't get anything going and um it's just so weird because like all of the things like if he were to actually hit her like because he's trying with all of his might to like hit her and hit her and these are not like practice swords it would have like killed her or like at least injured her really badly because she's an elf and matt from nerd of the rings i just watched his video this morning too he mentions how if one of the blows actually landed and like hit her in the neck and like chopped her head off would they be like oh so are we going to middle earth anymore because she's the reason we were or are we just are we off the hook now can we just stay home so it's just kind of like uh, i didn't really like it it's always i don't know i just thought it was really cringy and too cliche um i didn't really like it it was like it was almost like too um what's the word is it comedical com com i don't really know I mean, I'm struggling. Uh, comedical, com. I don't know. Anyways, you get the idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't. I don't really like that scene. That's all I'm gonna say on that. I'm done with it. I'm moving on. Whatever. Um, and then we kind of talk about uh, Kemen, who is uh, Farazan's son. He is kind of in love with uh, Ayarian, who is Elendil's daughter, and she's trying to convince him that like we shouldn't go to Middle Earth because. Um, 
I can't remember the reason. Honestly, I was bored with this episode, so I might have just kind of blanked on that scene or like wasn't focusing on it. Um, it was just like one of those side character scenes that just don't feel super important. And I wasn't very compelled to watch it. <laughs> Sorry to say. Um, and so I guess she's trying to convince him to convince her, his father, Farazone, to stop the, um, the expedition to Middle Earth. And he, he's talking about how, um, every time he speaks to his father, it's like his father's ears close or something like that. And he doesn't want to listen to what he has to say. And I think in one of the worst lines so far, Ayarian turns to him and says, then speak louder. And he like looks off into the distance thoughtfully, like it was something so inspirational and motivational that it changed his perspective. And now he's going to talk to his father with confidence that he knows what he's doing. And I just thought, speak louder, what? Like I get that she's trying to be helpful, but it's just like, yeah, speak louder. And you might, he might listen to you. Maybe he's deaf. Like, it, I don't know. I just didn't have, it almost didn't like, I think the writers were almost trying too hard with that one. And it just like kind of missed the mark of having an inspirational, deeper meaning. And it didn't do anything for me. Actually, it did do something for me. I cringed hard. Um, I got to stop using cringe because I feel like using the word cringe is kind of cringy. Sorry, everyone. Um, but yeah. So uh, after that, weird scene um we see Farazon talking to his son Kemen and um Farazon is actually explaining the reason I am going through with this is because um we have the chance of establishing a kind of like colony or a tribute kingdom in Middle Earth who can pay obviously taxes to us tribute to us we have trade routes open in Middle Earth all that sort of stuff so I guess the way they're setting it up is that Farazon is going to be the one to kind of transform Numenor into a great kingdom into an empire like a global empire so and that could be the way the people of Numenor um, end up kind of supporting him more than Muriel um, and he becomes the king uh, and then uh, Muriel is uh, oh and it, it should be noted too that by this time Numenor should already have a strong and impressive navy and army, like I said earlier, and they should also have port cities in Middle-earth at this time too, which means they would already have trade routes open and tributes, but we'll just kind of skip over that again. It's one of those picky things, or those things that I'm picky about again, um, just the timeline, but I get it's a compressed timeline. There's going to be some inconsistencies. Uh, in fact, most of the uh, show is inconsistent, so whatever. Um, and then we see Muriel talking to Tar Palantir, her father. And he warns her not to go to Middle-earth because all that lies ahead for her is darkness. So she's all like, ooh, scary. Um, and, of course, his name is Tar Palantir, which means the far-sighted. So he can kind of see into the future a little bit in visions. Um, then we see the stranger bathing his wound from the magic uh, supersonic sound wave blast. <laughs> and um, he's kind of like muttering an incantation, which... Um, one of the incantations was found to be Envinyatar, which means to renew or heal. So it seems like, yeah, he was healing himself. And for some reason, the water was like turning into ice and the ice was creeping up his arm. And Nori, in all of her Harfoot stupidity, grabs onto his arm because it was freezing. And her hand ends up getting stuck in the ice that's going up his arm. And when the incantation stops, um, the ice like kind of explodes and she's thrown back and hurt. 
Um, and then she's kind of now scared of the stranger and she kind of runs away. So I'm like, oh, that's kind of your fault. You're kind of stupid. So whatever. <clears throat> um, yeah. And then there's a forest banquet dinner party, basically with Durin, Elrond, Gilgalad, Celebrimbor, and some other elves and dwarven guards. Um, <clears throat> and the Gilgalad now, I don't like him anymore. He seems so much like he seems so like arrogant and like everything he does is right and whatever he's planning on is good. Um, but yeah, I don't like Gilgalad anymore. Kelbrimbor is still cool. He's still okay. Um, I'd like to see his character developed more. Like he, the sole reason behind him wanting to forge is because he wants to create like a great kingdom for himself and all that sort of stuff. But so far, it just seems like he's almost like. Uh, like a little, how do I put it? He's like Gilgalad's like lackey who, he's like, oh yeah, I'll I'll create a forge and I'll do all this sort of stuff. I'll get the dwarves on our side, that sort of thing. I don't know why I did that voice for him. He doesn't sound like that. Sorry, Kelbrimbor. Um, and then Elrond and Durin are still great. I love them as characters, and um, they're both really good friends. You can see it. And uh, Gilgalad after the party or banquet makes Elrond recount the story of the roots of the Hithyglir, which means the Misty Mountains in Sindarin. Um, and I guess a Cimmeril was um, hidden in a tree at the top of the Misty Mountains. Um, and even if it is symbolism, trees don't grow that far up on mountains. Um, and there is an elf with a pure heart, or is like a heart as pure as Manwe himself, so a little reference there. Uh, an elf with a pure heart guards the tree because he knows what's in it and he kind of pours all of his purity into the tree or whatever to protect it and on the other side a balrog is pouring in his hate and evil into the uh, tree and he's trying to destroy it or get to it and during this battle between the elf and the balrog uh, lightning strikes the tree and its roots um, like it kind of strikes the tree goes through the silmaril and the roots kind of turn into silver and they stretch all the way down into the Misty Mountains, and that's what causes the veins of Mithril to form. Um, and one thing I want to ask is, what Silmaril is this? Because we know from the beginning when the Silmarils were created, we can we can show where they are at all times. So even if this story was... Um, a story from the Second Age. It wouldn't make sense. Where, why would there be a Silmaril from the Second Age? If this was a story from the First Age, the elves didn't live near the Misty Mountains unless they were uh, Sylvan elves, but they wouldn't know anything about the Silmarils and they wouldn't want to guard it. Um, and then if it was a story from before the First Age, we know that the Silmarils are indeed in Valinor or in Iman so they wouldn't be in Middle-earth at all. So yeah, we know from the get-go when the um, Silmarils are made that they are in Amon when Feanor creates them. And when Morgoth steals them, he steals all three, so we know where all three are. They are in his Iron Crown, and he goes to Middle-earth and sits in Angband, his fortress, and they're there forever. And then one day, Baron and Luthien come knocking, and uh, Baron cuts... Um, one of the Silmarils out of his crown while Morgoth is under an enchanted sleep. And so there's one Silmaril. It's with Baron and Luthien. And then the other two is still in the crown. And then when it when uh, Morgoth is defeated, 
did I say Sauron stole it? I can't remember. Anyways, when Morgoth is defeated, um, the Valar and uh, Aeonwe, the the herald of Manwe, um, he takes the Silmarils and he um, he guards them in the camp um, of the Valar and the elves and stuff after their mighty victory over Morgoth at the end of the first age, and the sons of Feanor still bound under their oath, which I think at this point is uh, Celebgorm, Curufin, um, and Maglor. I can't remember. There was like three or four left. Um, but they uh, they go into the camp to attack the guards who are guarding it to take the Silmarils, and they each get their own Silmaril. I think one of the brothers is slain or something like that, but they each get their own Silmaril. Uh, I think it's Maglor and... I can't remember if it's Korofin or Caligorm. It's one of the two. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so they each get their own Silmaril, but the pain of the Silmarils, because their oaths were not righteous, their oaths weren't pure, their hearts weren't pure going into it, uh, the Silmarils burned them. They didn't have pure hearts. So I think Maglor cast his deep into the sea, and he wandered the shores of Middle-earth ever after, which Adar could be Maglor. I doubt it, though. Um... But so we know one is in the sea now, and then um, we know one was with Baron and Luthien, and I'll get to that one in a second. And then we know um, the other one that Caligorm or Cordofan had, he cast it into a fiery chasm, and he went down with it because he couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, so one is buried underneath in pools of lava, probably, and then another one is... Uh, deep in the sea, and then the one that Baron and Luthien had was passed on to uh, their son, Dior, and that was passed on to Dior's daughter, Elwing, and Elwing and Eärendil, her husband, um, or Eärendil carried it upon his brow to Valinor to um, ask for pardon for the elves and men, and that's what caused the whole battle against Morgoth and the Valar to come over. So, we know that one is still upon Eärendil's brow, and is actually the star of Eärendil, that you see in the morning, the Dawn Star. Or Venus, I think, is what it's supposed to be. So we know one's underground, one's in the sky, and one's in the sea. So I have no idea what the Silmaril is, and that was just a little history on the Silmarils, but I don't like this little history folktale that they have about the, the Mithril. Um, yeah, so all are accounted for, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense, the origins of Mithril like that. And, um, hold on, let me find my notes. I'm losing them. I, I, I have paper notes this time, everybody. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. Where am I? Oh, there it is. Okay. Just flip my paper, my little journal. Okay, there we go. Um, so one thing is, is it could be like an elvish folktale, like I was saying, like uh, folklore, and it could be almost like legend and uh, not true at all but it could just be a way to explain how mithrils were formed um, and I guess mithril is the salvation of the elves and it's the only way to kind of save their sacred tree in Linden which apparently is tied to the elves health it's not like it's the white tree or anything I don't know and um, so Gilgalad and Celebrimbor are both trying to convince Elrond to kind of give up like have the dwarves found mithril or anything like that and um, and they only know about Mithril because of the legend of how Mithril was formed in the Misty Mountains. 
and uh, so I guess the whole reason is that Mithril can save the elves because they're dying if you know they don't get Mithril soon and they don't get enough of it which is I don't know I don't like it it's not a very solid uh, concept it's not a very solid motivation I don't like it um, and then a sealed door uh, we go back to him a sealed door tries to get even with Valendil and he lets him uh, hit him twice it's just like I'm sorry you can hit me twice if you want and Valendil absolutely knocks the crap out of him it was awesome <laughs> um, but anyways so he doesn't get the spot uh, just because Valendil's like no you like you didn't earn it and, like you kind of trashed us and all that sort of stuff um, a sealed door then sneaks on to one of the ships to hide like in some like a storage compartment uh, for the ships and then actually Kemen arrives on the same ship and he starts uncorking the barrels of oil and uh, is going to light it on fire but then a sealed door um, actually Kemen discovers a sealed door hiding because he makes a noise and then a sealed door tries to stop him from burning the ship down because he wants to go to Middle Earth on that ship um, but then they kind of wrestle around a little bit trying to stop each other in the lantern that Kemen is holding uh, falls and it lights the ship on fire and then all the barrels explode but then we see that Isildur and Kemen uh, swim off the ship and they arrive at the docks and everyone's like watching the explosion Elendil's there and when Isildur brings Kemen up to shore he asks what happened and Isildur was like oh he was in a fishing boat and I rescued him because the ship was burning and all this sort of stuff and then Elendil's like well my boy is actually pretty brave so then he allows him to come on the journey but only as a stable sweeper for the horses so it's kind of like a win lose but win i don't know um but yeah so uh, and then we get to galadriel trying to convince halbrand again to go to middle earth and halbrand's trying to he's like well i'm not the king you would want to crown um all that sort of stuff i have a dark past Galadriel talks about her past as well um, so maybe there's some hope for Galadriel that she'll kind of start to grow out of this and become the Galadriel we know um, but then uh, Halbrand ev eventually is convinced to go to Middle-earth and um, we get to the Southrons who have abandoned uh, Arondir and Bronwyn in there with Adar and Waldrick who's like that kind of bartender who also has the sword mark uh, that Theo has, um, <clears throat> he he says, "I will serve you, Sauron," or something like that. And Adar like hits him and knocks him down. And apparently, he didn't. He either didn't like being called Sauron, or he knew that because um, in the books it mentions that uh, Sauron doesn't permit his name to be s spoken, or he doesn't permit it to be written down, except for in a few occasions. Um, so it could just be that Adar is almost protecting Sauron, like, how dare you use my master's name, or he could be Sauron, and he's, like, trying not to, like, reveal it yet or something, I don't know, um, but yeah, and then he, he makes Waldrick, uh, kill, uh, I think his name is Rowan, um, who is Theo's friend, uh, in order to swear fealty to him, uh, show his loyalty, and from what we see, the scene ends before anything happens, but from what we see, it seems like Waldrick does kill him. Um, so I guess he is committed to Adar. Um, and then Bronwyn is actually convinced that nothing will work and that she should just surrender too, that 
there's no way that they're going to fight against all these orcs and win. And Arondir's trying to convince her there, there is a way. Like, we, I don't know what we can do, but there is a way. Um, so he's not very convincing. Um, and then, uh, but eventually she gives in and she's like, okay, I mean, we could probably think of something. Um, and then the Numenorians kind of have this like parade down the streets, head off to the ships. And Sildor, like I said, is a stable sweeper. Elendil is the captain, and he has like one of those winged helmets that you see the tower, uh, um, what do you call it? The Citadel guards in Minas Tirith in The Return of the King. You see them wear when they're standing by the tree. It's sort of like that. And then we see Halbrand in some cool custom armor, and then we see Galadriel in her uh, cool armor as well. Um, and then, so it seems like the whole point of this episode was basically just to kind of fill in some spots and gear everything up for this battle that's ha happening in the Southlands and where Mordor is and um, that sort of thing. And, you know, I know those sort of episodes exist in a lot of shows, but it just this one just didn't work for me. I'm sad to say it because I think it could have had a lot of potential. There were a few name drops and stuff that was pretty cool. The Balrog that we saw was sick. Um, there were some, a few good things. And as always, the visuals and the sound and the songs and everything was great. It was just kind of the writing seemed a little lazy this time around. Um, not a lot of the stories were very compelling. Uh, I think favorite part so far still is Elrond and Durin. Their friendship is really funny. Their friendship's good. Um... And so I like them. I, I think they're a very solid part of the show. Uh, but other than that, I don't really find anything else super interesting about this episode. Um, I'm just hoping that the last three episodes, six, seven, eight, um, will be much better. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of it. I, I went over half an hour, I know. Um, but I do anyways. But uh, that's it for now. Um, and hopefully I didn't ramble on too much. I'm... Like I said, these uh, episodes are not planned very well. I watch the episode on Friday night, and I write notes about it, and then I wake up in the morning, record, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's about it. Um, yeah, so Jay will be back next week with the Rings Power Half Hour episode 6, and I will do 7, and Jay will finish off with 8, or maybe we'll do a joint one and both talk about episode 8 and then just kind of... Uh, um, talk about what we liked about the whole show and everything um yeah so that's it uh for exploring middle earth i'm grant and this is farewell <laughs>